Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I have untangled myself from my stepbrother's grip, ran 1,500 miles north, nearly lost myself in the Pacific Ocean, and still came out with some really fly shoes. My God. This program features the work of 2020 writer Ebo Barton. In the first half, you'll hear their conversation with curator Anastasia René, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. Would you tell us about your Jack Straw project? It is a self-published book that is going to be produced in tandem with an audiobook because my poetry is meant to be heard and because folks often learn better audibly versus on the page. But uh, it's currently titled Misaligned Skill Set, and uh, it's separated into three sections. I was recently labeled these three things, and so I'm using it as sort of a response to that of how I am and how I'm not. Um, these three things, so the book is separated into three different sections. One is insubordinate, which I love because that's literally every part of me is insubordinate. Um, <laughs> my bones are made out of insubordination. Um, and misaligned skill set, which is probably the hardest to hear in all of my identities, right? Like, so as a person of color, specifically as a black person, as somebody assigned female at birth, as a transgender person, like all of these, I'm, I, as queer, as poor, as like, I'm misaligned in every sort of way. Um, and so that is really important. And then my last portion is called, uh, I was told that I was unwilling to collaborate. And so the last part is called collaboration in which I'm inviting, I'm slowly getting to this part, but I'm slowly inviting people that I've worked with to produce poetry with me in this last uh, section. But all of these will be produced uh, as a printed book as well as an audio book. What, if any, is the difference between spoken word poetry and poetry? You know, my young people ask me this all the time. The only difference to me is that I choose to say it out loud and other folks don't. Um, Because I think that from what I learned from page poets is that if you do read it out loud, there is a particular way you have to read it out loud, and there's a way you will feel it. It's just that that particular poet decided that it wouldn't be released from, like, part of the metaphor, the cages of a book. What's been the biggest epiphany for you when you think about your journey as a writer? I think the biggest epiphany is that depending on the topic or subject, I'm not the same writer. And I think that we get latched on to, like, this is my style or this is who I am as a writer or whatever. But depending on the subject matter, I'm an entirely different writer each time. Um, And even oftentimes in time limit or page space or, you know, whatever the case may be, like, all of a sudden I'm someone else. I would love it if you shared an excerpt of your work with us. Absolutely. This poem is newer, and it's called Freedom Cut Me Loose obviously inspired by Beyonce's Lemonade, um, because why else would I write anything, really? Um, But yeah, so that's what this is about. When I came out to my mother, her first reaction was to comment on the volume of my voice when I said transgender, as if being myself in public was not loud enough. I lowered my voice. Do you reach black adulthood 
when your parents' reactions to your choices start to sound hollow like the rings in bondage, when you look into a mirror and discover you are the onlyest and ugliest salvation your family ever inherited? Do you reach brown adulthood when your reflection rejects you in your second language? The language you kept safe in your back pocket is an exhausted compass that only points to the ocean. What about respect for my elders means mute yourself? Are you still an adult if you just want to go home? I learned that being free isn't what everyone wants, especially if you find custody convenient. I know that you think my gender makes you angry, that your Jesus did not die for this, but the truth is, my gender binds you to fear, uncovers your discomfort from seeing the rapture of my reach, these bare wrists. What about my freedom scares you? I named myself Ebo to worship the slave rebellion that drowned their captors, rose into the sky, turned into birds, and flew back home. Why would you deny me this worship? Why would you keep this story trapped in a book? Don't mistake me for fearless. It took me a whole lifetime to get back home, but I'm still willing to come back for you if you want to come. Jaden Smith's skirt, Billy Porter's wardrobe, Lizzo's exposed thong, Monroe Bergdorf's middle finger, Zaya Wade, Harriet Tubman, my beard, my pronouns, my lips blossoming on a shoulder blade. We are the efflorescence of eternal emancipation. Come with us. Before you leave, Tell my mother I've uninstalled the whisper in my authentic. If you don't want to untie the knots of shame, trying to convince you compromises the wind cradling my wings. So stay in bliss. But ask yourself, are you free? Or are you conditioned to this captivity? Whatever the answer is, please let me live. I want to go home. What do you celebrate about yourself and your work? That I'm still here. Because a lot of my stories are in spite of, I feel like, or um, some challenge that I'm, you know, that I'm experiencing in this body. And to be able to read it out loud means that I'm still here and talking about it and you haven't shut me up yet. So, Do you have an issue with writer's block? And if you do, how do you how do you cope with it? How do you push through? How do you keep writing? I am starting to recognize that I feel like writer's block is a capitalist concept in which that we are always expected to produce and produce and produce and produce. And that's not ju- that's just not how art works to me. Um, in a, an ideal world, I would get paid regardless of what I produce because that's just my right to live. Um, but like I'm starting to try to unhinge myself from this you are not worthy or you're not good because you are not producing. And when those times do happen, I have to give myself that space. My brain can only take so much. My body can only take so much. And it's almost like, I know that you've experienced this. When you go to a festival, a poetry festival or a literary festival or a conference, there comes a point in time during the conference where like, I'm just, I don't care how good it is. I just can't take it anymore, <laughs> right? Where it's just like, I don't care if it's, you know, Audre Lorde on stage right now, I just can't. And I feel like our brains do that for us too, 
where it's just like I can't expel or I can't produce any more of these memories or these uh, these words or these these concepts anymore, and you need that time to rest, right? And I think that writer's block in the positive way is your brain being like, chill, it's okay, we're good, <laughs> just not right now, you know? How do you have the courage to discuss so many things publicly? We talked about, you know, being a page poet versus being a stage poet, and sometimes it's both. It's easier, I think, for some writers to tuck the words and the courage on the page and never have to present it As on it stage, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. How do you have the courage to do things like talk about God, um, talk about sex, talk about all the ick and the glory in front of people? So a very long time ago when I was teenager poet Ebo, uh, a mentor told me, um, and this is actually the breakthrough I had in performance, is a mentor told me that anytime I get on stage, it's my business with God. And whatever God, symbol, you know, spirit, whatever the God is that I believe in, and I've always taken that to heart where it's not really about the audience anymore. It's really about the work, the self-work I have to do um, when I get on stage. So really, when I say the stage is my church, like it actually is my church. And that's what I'm doing for me at that point in time. And if somebody grabs onto it, cool, but I'm going to keep going, <laughs> like regardless of where you're at, right? If you could, what would you say to... Little Ebo about writing and creativity and being here. Oh, little Ebo. Uh, little Ebo. I don't know if they would listen. Let's put it that way, knowing <laughs> knowing them well. <laughs> but I'd be like, run. No, but um, what I'd actually say to little Ebo is um, the best is yet to come. Stop waiting for your masterpiece because, it, like, even at 36 years old, it's not there yet. It's, and I don't know that. And now I'm starting to recognize that I might never produce that that I will recognize in my lifetime. Now, we'll hear a selection from Ebo's live reading. I'm going to start with a poem um, called A Litany for Not Surviving Nonprofits. It is after A Litany for Survival by Audre Lorde, every queer person's favorite meme. Um, okay, so I'm going to read this poem and, uh, and I'll keep going. For those of us who live on the cliffs of not making rent, side hustle professionals while watching our brown faces and the faces of brown children, we want nothing more than to protect, be sold to white funders for the paycheck and conscious of people who refuse to even see us. And even despite this, we hashtag love our jobs, stay up late talking brilliant young people from ledges, come up with reasons to talk ourselves from ledges while directors, board members, institutional staff, white supremacy parish members sleep soundly to the tune of six-figure salaries and clout lullabies with their beautiful families that they have the choice to make. 
say, come up with reasons to talk ourselves from ledges. For those of us who have been told we say too much, we are not patient enough, we do not get it, we do not know when we are the grown-up versions of the very children they claim to be saving, say, we are the grown-up versions of the very children they claim to be saving. When nonprofit says community, what they mean is picture for a poster. When we say community, we mean a child whose mother I know. That we are not interested in saving, but helping them see themselves as worthy of more than a speech at a fundraiser. Say we. When nonprofit says nonprofit, nonprofit means for nothing that truly makes change. When nonprofit says nonprofit, nonprofit means I must sacrifice myself to prove our commitment to people that know my commitment so that nonprofit can co opt my commitment for its mission statement. When nonprofit says nonprofit, nonprofit means we gain nothing and nonprofit gains a shiny white badge of complicit for their annual report say complicit. Where is my spreadsheet that proves my production paid in pennies in sacrifice in meetings that could have been emails from white woman's carelessness, from able-bodied bliss, from men's needless philosophies, from cis resistance to be told anything about themselves because someone had the time, the expensive education, the ability to take a partner, the double income, the privilege, the privilege, the privilege to get pregnant again, say privilege. For those of us, who want nothing more than anyone at a staff meeting to stop fucking talking about themselves for two minutes to notice what it takes for some of us to even make it to this table that you did not build for us to be at, but here we are anyway. Remember, this whole system was never meant for us to survive it. Say, this whole system was never meant for us to survive it. And when you go home and the lights don't turn on, the fear is that the bill has gone unpaid for too long. When you make sure to pack unseasoned and mediocre food from a potluck retreat with no results, the fear is that this is what you, all you will eat until payday and still come up empty. When the love of your life leaves you in the midst of all of this, the fear is that she prefers the whiteness that this job reinforced you will never be. And when you finally speak up, if you choose to do so, and you are tagged insubordinate. I know that. <laughs> Misaligned. It was all in my resume. Unwilling. Please review your own work plan. And you are forced to resign. Quit quietly. Stop showing up. Terminated. Remember, this whole system was never meant for any of us to survive it. Thank you. Um, two names I want y'all to know. Uh, Tony McDade and Tina, uh, Nina Pop um, are two trans folks, uh, two black trans folks that were recently murdered. Um, and I suggest that you look it up because their names are not being heard enough. Um, and, you know, it is a tragedy when, when all people die. However, I feel like these stories are getting left out for a reason. So if you don't know those names, um, please look them up and remember those stories um, because they deserve to be remembered. My next poem that I'm going to read it's, uh, it's a little bit about my family. I like talking about my family because they're the inspiration of my art. Uh, <laughs> anyway, my religious aunt recalls a family tragedy in a car ride. The story spills out of her mouth like a communion wine. 
We had just come from dinner, so it felt appropriate to drink her every word. Her expensive name brand purse her pulpit. She ends her sermon by saying, it shows you the power of the hand of God. My family members humbly moved out of their minivan bench. My uncle nods from the front seat. Even Santo Nino bobbles in approval from the dashboard. The rear view rosary swaying like a desperation prayer. And my universe stone and sage burning queer moody self wants to sigh, holy breath. But I realized you can't tell anyone how to worship. My aunt, while an unrecognized God herself, speaks as if Jesus is her own son, per perpetually surviving and mourning the death of actual Jesus and her actual son, her depleting husband, her nearly invisible daughter, this fiery hell of a family of ours. How can she not see the God in herself? How is that she is not the church focal point? Why do our knees not buckle in prayer as she enters the room? Because we call her for help before we pray to whatever is up there. And maybe it's because we don't want to give the ending away. Maybe it's what we've all been waiting for. And maybe it's what we've all been living for. But maybe it's also why I've never seen myself as holy. Why I've ripped my body into pieces and offered it up as a sacrifice to my relationships. Why I've told lovers that I'm not even worth praying for, let alone pray to. I may have never flooded the earth or banished curious fruit pickers from my garden, but I have made an overdrawn bank account pay for wine to heal myself. I've swam in the deepest end, drowned, died, and resurrected, and no one even noticed at work on Monday, and isn't that godlike? I have untangled myself from my stepbrother's grip, ran 1,500 miles north, nearly lost myself in the Pacific Ocean, and still came out with some really fly shoes. My God. And there is no book about me, no commandments I list to get into my arms, no cross, no stained glass summaries of the tragedies of my life, dear God. And by God, I mean you, I mean my Tita Tessie, I mean Safeway cashier, nightlife dancer, I mean me, I mean me, dear me, look how far you've come in creation. Your hand, your breath is the prayer and the response. Thank you. Um, cool. So uh, my last poem is this poem, and a lot of folks are afraid of speaking up and speaking out because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing, and they're afraid of making a mistake. And I think that one of the biggest things I've learned throughout my entire life is that you're never going to learn if you don't make the mistake. So speak out. Feel stupid if you want to. Like, and sit with that for a while because the, the other thing wasn't working. I have traveled in and out of the Pacific Ocean, across this wretchedly beautiful fuckery of borders we call country, been to love but never through it, two puberties, a library wall filled with unfinished books on heartbreak, about 13 breakdowns and only two breakthroughs, and I've driven no miles because we're sitting in a Zoom chat room, but that's okay, um, to come here to this gallery of skeletons from out of the weather of raining expectations and unpredictions to tell all of you, make a fucking mistake. I watched a Facebook video wherein the bass drum of an orchestra hit his note with so much passion, the drum mallet flew from his hands and hit the triangle player square in the face. The song never missed a note. But I imagine that in another dimension, that woman yelled fuck so loudly, it bounced off the walls of the amphitheater and into the mouths of the pearl necklace wealthy white women and fuck, 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 fuck became the best remix the symphony has ever heard. My mother, 
is not as crazy as I make her out to be, probably. But she had to have been, to have created an offspring with the man I'm supposed to call father on purpose. And that makes me a mistake. But look at what this mistake can do. Look how many lives I've lived. Look how many people can love me. Look how I can change and learn and grow and evolve. Look at the moon. I've read somewhere that a former planet shoulder checked a piece of our planet and that piece got captured in the orbit we call her the moon. And I imagine that she had the opportunity to roam the entire universe, but she fell so in love with our faces that she committed her body to be on night watch for eternity. Tell me you can't find the beauty in mistakes. I've lost a lot of friends, life, sanity, time, making mistakes, but I can only hope that I walk this life differently because of them. Next time, I will be so much better, I promise. Tomorrow, I will stand in front of a woman I've never even felt worthy of looking at. She pays all her bills on time. And she wakes up early and like goes to the gym and stuff. <laughs> and she makes her mama proud. And I will say, make a mistake with me. I've lived on this broken piece of rock for 36 years and I've never been right about anything. So why would I be right about you? So come with me. We'll spill our combined traumas on each other's shirts. Let's feel really uncomfortable about what we said out loud. Let's go to the airport, wrong airport on the wrong day and still get on the plane when it's actually time. To air is human, so let's be so human. Our flesh thinks of fuck up. It'll be my fault, your bad, and our misstep, and we'll just do better next time. I'm sorry in advance for tripping on you. I'm sorry if my drumstick hits your face, but the beat is different now. And fuck, it's beautiful. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. Produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Sassy Black. Produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2020 curator of this program is Anastasia Renee, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keen. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.